Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works by Philip K. Dick and give some of my thoughts and commentary. In this episode, I will continue my look at Dick's 1957 novel, Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky is a novel of the Cold War surveillance state, but it's also a novel of false realities and how each of us holds within us a delusional view of reality. The conclusion he seems to come to is that most of us, if not all of us, live in a distinct mental realm that cannot be known to outside observers. If you think of the experiences you have when you're interacting with someone, maybe even someone you love or care about or spend a long long time with, and you realize that they have a strange view of reality or they don't understand things, and certainly we see this in political divisions within a nation in which you know, you look at a typical voter from one party versus a typical voter of another party, and you realize that they, they really see the world in fundamentally different ways. And this is the theme and the ideas that Dick is playing with in Eye in the Sky. With the internal monologue of each of us impossible to know, Dick decided to write a novel where the characters live through the worldview of other people. And he uses a science fiction device to make this happen. The result is a fascinating and, I think, quite brilliant novel of suspicion amid shifting realities. This is also a novel of utopia. Each world the characters inhabit is a utopia for one of them. Well, I guess technically we could say two are utopias and two are technically dystopias. But in doing it this way, Dick is perhaps casting doubt on the entire concept of utopia. Right? If each of us created an ideal world, the result would be terror for most of the rest because, again, we are all kind of looking through the world with our own particular gaze. That's a, always a bit of a distortion. And our attempts to fix the problems of the world, our attempts to manifest what we think is good in the world, will tend to result in a, a, a horror for most of the other people. Now, Dick, in this novel, even manages to squeeze in some really fascinating and I think relevant identity politics, talking about the traditional role of women, seeing them at times both backward and conservative, and at other times downright psychotic. Violence against women is presented as resulting in long-term psychological trauma for one of our characters, and this can creep into other people's lives in strange and interesting ways. He also discusses racial politics by showing a black character who finds an obvious delusion a better deal than the reality offered in the the quote-unquote real world. It's a very much a character-driven story with each of the major characters quite fully formed and we even have many compelling side characters. So I think this is one of Dick's novels that have I guess the most memorable characters and because we spend so much time in the heads of four of these characters that they really become much more memorable. I think some of his earlier novels don't have that same the characters that I guess are fully formed and in memorable and sharp here we start he starts to get a little bit better at characterization because it it really requires it because you know each chapter you know has us most of the chapters in the book have us in someone's head literally so 
the the main eight characters we have suffer an accident and I, I go through the characters one at a time in the previous episode so i'm just going to kind of refer you to that episode and, and for those of you who listen to each one of these you don't want to hear me go through it again but I, I will just quickly bring everyone back up to speed we have a married couple jack hamilton and marcia hamilton and these i guess are our main characters uh, marcia hamilton is being suspected of being a communist and jack hamilton has just lost his job uh, because of his wife's uh, leftist activities. We have Charlie McFaith, who is Hamilton's co-worker. He actually works in the security, and he's the one who identified Marsha as a security risk. And he's a fairly likable character. He's kind of a, a fun guy. He likes to drink. Um, and he has a very interesting backstory. We have Bill Laws, who's a very brilliant nuclear engineer. But um, because he's black, he's not really able to move up into his profession, and he's a tour guide for this Bevatron particle deflator. We have uh, Edith Pritchett and his son, David Pritchett. And Edith is a overweight, dotting, and very anxious and moralistic mother. And David's not nearly as well-formed. He's simply there as her son. We have Joan Reese, who's a businesswoman. Joan, Joan Reese is a paranoid personality, although we don't really learn that till later. And then we have Arthur Sylvester, who is a war veteran and the creator of the first of the alternate realities that the characters experience. Um, so one important theme in this novel that I want to talk about is the surveillance state. It's, it's really, I think this novel is both a novel of subjective reality, as I already talked about, and it's also a novel of the surveillance culture and the surveillance state. And they do intersect in an important way in that a, can a surveillance culture ever really know one's subjective realities? In, in Dick's earlier novels, like Vulcan's Hammer, not published until 1960, but, but written earlier, and I think The Man Who Japed, you have a f type of surveillance state there where people can be observed and people's actions are kept track on, especially in The Man Who Japed. You have these things called the juveniles that can watch everyone's activity. And this creates some, it's a very moralistic society where people's moral lives are regulated, but there's a bit of confidence in the system because of the juveniles can observe things. And I think Dick in this novel starts to question that in, by saying just because someone does something doesn't mean that reflects their inner thoughts and their feelings. And this, this becomes a problem with like the anti-communist crusade, right? Someone can go to anti-war rally. Someone can go to, um, you know, a kind of a leftist gathering or read leftist books and not necessarily be a communist deep down. And someone could pretend or on the outwardly to be a very conservative, almost fascistic figure, but, you know, deep down they might be a communist. Right, so I think what Dick is saying is the surveillance state really can't penetrate the mind very well. And to really know someone, you have to live the life as they see it, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. But it's even more than that. You have to kind of walk a mile in their brain. Now, as Eye in the Sky opens, we learn that Jack Hamilton is about to be fired from his high security military contractor position. He's a very skilled electrician, but his wife has been exposed as being too friendly with leftist groups. The investigation is done by Hamilton's acquaintance and sometimes friend Charlie McFaith. Before his career can entirely implode, however, Hamilton has this accident which pushes his wife and him and five others into this alternate world. They will be forced to navigate these four alternate worlds, these fantasy worlds, before they recover from the accident and can fully enter the real world. I think the only reason we don't get eight is because Dick didn't have space, right? This novel is 250 pages and he, he ran out of time. In fact, you find that the time he spends in each alternate reality is shorter. The first is the longest 
He has a lot of fun with it, and then he realizes I have to go through more, and I only don't have I only have another hundred pages. So he starts to rush it, and that's a bit unfortunate about it. But you know, it would be interesting if he could go through all eight. Uh, I think it would make his point more clear. But he just does the four. Now this all happens in a few seconds in real time, but it covers days and days in their mind. What is important is that each of the four worlds they pass through is a security culture with varying degrees of power and control. Now the titular eye in the sky actually exists in all four, and if you include the real world, we actually have five examples of the eye in the sky. There is a literal eye in the sky in one of them, and you might think that's where the name comes from, but eye in the sky is actually exists in all four of these mental realms, and then also in the real world. Now to list them, we have the Cold War security clearance, bureaucracy, and the, 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 the Red Scare. In one, we have an all-seeing deity. In one, we have a moral reformer. In another, we have a paranoid totalitarian, nearly a Stalinistic figure. And then finally, we have a police force controlled by the capitalist class. Now, these are all horrible for some of the participants, but they're all accepted, acceptable to other people, including some who create the world. So there's no model of a security and surveillance state that will not be welcomed by some and at the same time resisted by others. The creator is always defending their security as protecting the common good. Or the, the last one with the communist world is a little bit different because the guy who creates that world is, is a communist, but he creates a kind of capitalist dystopia. But all the others, the surveillance state is seen as protecting the common good. The creator is almost always in a position to declare and defend his views. Sometimes they would desperately, you know, if... If they were not in a position of power, they would they hide their views. But once they have this power by creating this world, they're, they're often very free and open and eager to defend their views. This is most well seen in the delusion created by Joan Rees, a paranoid, paranoid. And I guess Edith Pritchett's too, which is a, a moralistic world. Both of them are very vocal about their idea that they're creating a better, better world. We also learn that there's no clear division between the state apparatus of surveillance and private use. Corporations, both in the fantasy world and the real world, defend and participate in the collection of information. They defend it as a necessary obligation to the higher powers, the higher ups in power, and are also willing to use it for their own benefit as well. And it's for this reason that Jack Hamilton decides at the end of the novel not to just go to another corporation or work for the government, rather to set up and create his own small electronics business based on his love of music and Dick, of course, loved music and worked in a record store for a while. So that was a bit of Dick projecting his own dreams for himself into the novel. Okay, in future episodes, and I'll have five, four more after this, I will look at a few other, other themes. But let's get back to the story in some detail. Now, in the first part of this series, we, we looked at the first three chapters. And we learned how Jack Hamilton is losing his job because the company security officer deemed his wife, Marcia, a security threat. The security office, McFay, still wants to be friends with them and is even in some ways attracted to Marsha. And it's, it seems there's the suggestion anyways that he wouldn't mind if Jack and Marsha broke up. But he does invite them out to drinks because he's kind of friendly. And But before this, they decide to tour the Bevatron particle deflator. And that's where the accident takes place that throws these three people and five others into, into the particle deflator, where, which allows them to live out these other realities. They wake up in a hospital. Now, they don't know they're in another world at this time. They just think they're waking up after the accident. They're actually a bit surprised that everyone was okay. Most of the accident victims are fine. Uh, I think Arthur Sylvester is the worst off, and he has to stay in the hospital. 
The Hamiltons go home, taking another woman, jo- Joan Reese, who's a businesswoman who attended the tour and was in the accident with them. She goes along with them, and she expresses a deep fear of cats. And this is the first suggestion we have, that she's a paranoid. All, all these people start to, though, to think that there's something wrong in the world that they're living in. Many things seem off. Characters talk in ways that are not normal. And so it's just everyone doesn't feel that something has changed. Now, the arrival of a swarm of locusts proves that the world they are experiencing is not the one that they remember, where the rules are fundamentally different. Okay, so going on into the story. The, the next morning, Jack Hamilton prays to God for forgiveness for the way he treated Joan Reese before the locusts descended, despite the fact that he has not prayed since he was a child. And the character, now, with the people who are in these worlds, not, their behavior changes as well. Now, it doesn't change entirely. They're not puppets fully, but they do start to morph and adapt to the world they live in. It's very much like the story of the commuter, perhaps, where the change in the material reality creates changes in how the character sees the world and experiences it and does things. So Jack Hamilton is basically an atheist. He's not religious. And now he's praying suddenly and he doesn't really know why. He comments that Reese experienced irrational hatred toward cats as well. And she, he says that this attitude leads towards Nazism. Now, Bill Laws approaches the house and he comes to the door. Now, Bill's Laws is not really known to anyone at the time, but he is the tour guide who is who is there. And so why is he coming? Well, he asked if he basically is following up the people who are in the accident and asking if anything strange has been happening to them. Jack does make a connection that he was being punished. Uh, and this is why the bad things were happening to him, because actually two things happened to him. He was first stung by a bee for lying. And then when he mistreated Joan Reese, a locust swarms came to his house. Law shows Hamilton a charm he used to cure his own injuries. And he said this was a good luck charm that my sister gave, that his sister gave him before, but ever since the accident has developed the power to cure wounds if he asks for it. Marcia enters the conversation and discusses how she has been having this strange dream that they were still in the Bevatron. Other characters other changes in the world are evident as well. For, for example, manna can fall from heaven if asked for. Blessings seem to work. And most importantly, in general, prayers are answered. So this is the world in which prayers are answered. And the way these prayers manifest are in different ways. Like for Bill Laws, it was the charm that can cure. And also, not only are prayers answered, but God intervenes through punishing people for their misdeeds and their actions. Now, Hamilton drives up to the offices of the Electronics Development Agency. He finds his car is still at the missile factory. He meets an old friend, Dr. Guy Tillingford. Now, Tillingford is a character who wasn't in the accident, but he appears in all these worlds, or at least three of them, I think, maybe on all four, but he appears again and again in the story, but he, he kind of works differently. He has a different function in each. He's, he's kind of a character who helps people explain how the rules work in, in the world. And he always has the same role in that he's going to be the guy who hires Jack Hamilton into his new job. Now, Bill or Jack, sorry, Jack Hamilton explains why he has to leave the government work. And Hamilton notices that his friend's office has a prayer wheel. Now, during the interview for this new position, Tillingford asks about Hamilton's drinking habits and sexual history. So the nature of the surveillance state here totally changed. His old employer was interested in his wife's communist activities. This guy is interested mostly in his moral habits, his moral behavior. And he also asks if he found salvation through the one true God. 
Hamilton is surprised and blames this on the accident. He thinks something is weird in his head or something, um, explaining why all this strange behavior has been taking place and why he's seeing the world differently. In a sense, Hamilton is absolutely right about this, but for the wrong, you know, you just still come to the wrong conclusions. A technician overhears and makes a comment about the prophet. So again, we're having strange language and strange behavior, at least from the perspective of Jack Hamilton, entering into the world. Hamilton asks what sort of research he's been doing at the electron that's being done at the Electronics Development Agency, and Tillingford goes to explain that they're engaged primarily in theophonics. Theophonics, you know, theo for the divine and phonics sound. So basically, this is the technology of communicating with God. And he says that this technology has taken off since the, quote, war against the pagan hordes, which Hamilton immediately deduces is World War II, but it's been renamed the war against the pagan hordes. Hamilton asks about other fields of research as well, until he further suggests that most fundamental science fields are dead fields, because once you had theophonics, all that was known about the universe is known. All their sciences are then therefore applied. Everything is applied science. There's no need to know anything because all truth is is already known. Tillingford moves Hamilton to the personnel department to go through hiring, and but they first have the conversation about pay. Hamilton will get four credits towards salvation every 10 days. So even you don't need to buy things anymore for this world because it's it's sort of a post-scarcity world, but in a very strange way. Prayers will provide him everything he needs. So we sort of have, Dix likes this idea of kind of a post-scarcity economy. Usually it's technology, the auto fact that does that to create what everyone needs. And then the question is, why do we still need to work? And Dick actually has to kind of work with this in different ways in his, in his novels. In this case, you're working for salvation. Your day-to-day -day needs are provided through theophonics. You just pray to God and that those things will be created for you. You get literally manna from heaven. Certain prayers will provide him with everything else he needs besides salvation. He ends this interview with a friendly suggestion that he seeks help from the prophet Horace Clamp, who can set him on the right path in following the, the true religion, Second Babism. Now, if you don't know, Second, well, Babism, in short, is an, kind of an offshoot of, of Islam. It's, it was developed, I think, in the 19th century, mostly. It may have had some precursors, but it really developed in the 19th century. And it tried to combine and unify various monotheistic faiths. Now, Babism comes from the idea that like, the prophet is the Bab. And this is why it can't be reconciled with Islam, because there's this belief that there's you know, secondary prophets after Muhammad. I know the Baha'i faith is somewhat tied to this, so I'm, I'm not really an expert on it. it. It certainly can be qualified as a new religious movement. But it, it, you know, Dick doesn't pick like a popular religion. He doesn't make it Christianity because that'd be too obvious. He couldn't have as much fun with it. So he picks a religion that ne wasn't nearly as, as I guess, uh, widespread at the time. So then, at, so he's been told he has to go and kind of get right on the path of Second Babism. So after leaving the offices of the Electronics Development Agency, Jack Hamilton is stopped by some men who need to investigate him to, they need to investigate him to complete his employment review. One of them, whose name is Brady, asks about his quote-unquote N-rating. And they accuse him of being a heathen and challenge him, strangely, to an ordeal by fired in order to prove his faith. Okay, so they, they, this is a really bizarre thing that, of course, 
doesn't happen in our real world. People don't walk up to others and ask to prove their faith through a trial by fire. But this is like another window into the security culture. And of course, at the time, people were being dragged before Congress and told to prove they're not communists, right? So this is just a different kind of variation on on the Cold War Red Scare thing. But now it's about proving faith, not proving patriotism. Now, he fails because his fingers burned and he responds with pain. Angered with this investigation and the intrusiveness of it, Hamilton faces another challenge, but he's unable to cite Ohm's law despite asking for help through prayer. And again, this is another bizarre thing because he should be able to know Ohm's law. He's an electronics engineer. This is basic, but he fumbles it and he tries to get help through prayer. And so knowledge comes through prayer as well, not just your things that you need to, to live off of. So everything comes from God, through, but you have to ask for it through prayer. Hamilton is therefore exposed as a heathen by Brady. Hamilton, at the same time, is unable to best Brady, who's able to receive answers directly from an angel. Now, I know that Philip Dick liked opera and like classical music, so he must have known Wagner. He must have known the opera Siegfried. And there's a scene in Siegfried, if you've never watched it or listened to it, in which Mime, a dwarf, is challenged by a god, Wotan, who's in the form of the Wanderer at that point, to a, a riddle contest. And Mimi tries to trick him, trick the god, but he fails, of course. And then the god goes and asks him questions, including one of the questions that Mimi needs to know. And the lesson there was, if you're talking to a god, if you're in a riddle question, you don't ask questions you know, you ask questions you don't know and need to have information for, so you don't want to waste the, the opportunity. I was just reminded of that when I when I heard this when I, this passage. Actually, I listened to this book on audiobook this time. So Hamilton, though, tries to turn their logic against them, accusing them of sinning in their hearts and hiding their evil motives. Brady and the angel begin a theological discussion about the sinful nature of jealousy. And we we learn there are jealousy issues within the relationship of Hamilton and, and his wife, Marcia. So Hamilton drives away and he learns how he can use prayer to operate and maintain the car. So instead of having repair shops, you actually have like prayer stations where people pray to fix your car. Running the car just takes a prayer. So but prayer is required to do basically anything in this world. He drives off to his old workplace. He assumes that Colonel Edwards will be worse in this reality. So he, you know, he, he drives by his old workplace. He figures that Colonel Edwards will be worse. He doesn't want to go there. So he just goes to a bar called the Golden Claw. Now, why this world has a Golden Claw is something that's actually addressed in, or why this world has a bar is actually addressed in the novel in an interesting way. So who does he see in, in the bar except Charlie McFaith? They joke about the situation, both realizing that something really weird is going on in this world. McFaith has realized that this bar exists because in a puritanical religion where there's an obsession about morality, you need to have sinful places in order to test the moral order. It's really part of it. It's almost like the dialectic, right? You need to have sin. You need to have sin in order for virtue and morality to make any sense at all. Goodness can only exist alongside depravity, he says. So they, they kind of agree. Let's just let's just get drunk and have, you know, have a good time in this weird world we live in. Hamilton tells McFay that he plans to see the prophet Horace Clamp to get some of the answers. And, of course, this was recommended to him by his new employer. They nearly fight as McFay tries to take away 
this note with Clamp's contact information from Hamilton. Now, Bill Laws is there too, and he basically tells them that they need to start to work together to figure out what's going on in this world, to how to get out of it, or how to just manage it and live it. Now, at the time, it's not really clear whether they can escape. So they're, they're at the same time trying to learn the rules of this world, try to survive in it and, and live in it, and then you know maybe is it possible to escape it? They don't yet know they're in a mental realm. For all they know, the world has just changed because of whatever happened in the accident. Now, Laws introduces him to a woman just known as Grace, as a blonde woman he's with. He shows them also something amazing. He shows them the cigarette and candy machine. And he shows that they have no inventory. He actually opens them up and says that there's actually no inventory within it. They seem to produce items out of thin air. And the reason is, is because like everything else, this is, runs on prayer. So you just prayer, pray for what you want and you get it. They experiment with the device and explore how the machine works. It's, while it seems to work on miracles, it can also copy whatever's near it. So it's, it's kind of like a instant prayer or a program prayer. I, I'm almost thinking of, you know, if you ever play Dungeons and Dragons, you know, how you can cast spells if you're like a magic user, but you can also imbue items with the magical power to be used whenever it wants. So this machine almost is like a, like the prayer's already been worked into the device itself. And that instant automatic prayer is that it copies whatever's near it. And they begin to use this to create this endless supply of alcohol. I think it's cognac or a really expensive brandy, which they begin to distribute to the patrons. Laws, that's an interesting thing, because now this bar exists not as a capitalist enterprise, because there's, there's really no need anyone to buy liquor. It exists merely to be a depository of sinful behavior to contrast with virtue and goodness. And it becomes a very interesting gathering place for our characters. And, and they'll come back to here a couple times in the novel. They experiment also with prayers. Laws is, Laws is very interested in how these miracles work. And he, he's like the scientist. So he's he's curious about this. Hamilton is more desperate to get out of these situations. Law is more interested in working with them and seeing how they work and playing with these different realities. Laws' prayers are not answered, but Hamilton's are. And why this is, is something that's going to have to be answered, I suppose. Now, Grace comes again. Now, Grace's real name is Silky. And Silky is a character who appears in each of the four world that the characters inhabit and in this world she has a different role in each one in this world she's a prostitute so she invites hamilton she invites hamilton for some quote-unquote private rituals she says she has access to an intercom to heaven mcfay interrupts and begins leading the group somewhere else which turns out to be the church he attended as is his youth and it is a church for non-Second Bab believers. And so it's like a segregated church for people who don't believe in Second Babism. Now, why would anyone not believe in Second Babism when obviously it's true? Obviously, you can pray to God and you get, you know, magical things happen. It's, you know, God seems to be a real force in the world. Well, why not? Well, I suppose it's the same reason people in a world that seems to be materialistic, seems to be run by logic and science, believe in miracles and believe in God in, in our own world. It's just the inverse. So there are non-second bad believers. And one of these is McFay's old church. McFay goes in and claims he wants to convert some heathens. Now the church is run down. It, it's, it appears to have seen better days. It, it's losing believers. It's losing followers. It has to sell some of its elaborate equipment. He speaks to the, the priest there. His name is Father O'Farrell. And McFay asks about the history and the emergence of the second bad cult. And this is a, what sort of allows us to get a little bit of 
background on how this second Bab cult emerged. It seems to be an, an American version of Babism that took off in American cities. They, they force O'Farrell to put holy water on their umbrellas, and then they recite a prayer about going up to heaven. And as they do that, the umbrella begins to rise into the dark night sky. And that's how the chapters, I think it's chapter six, ends. Well, that does it. Uh, we're about a third of the way through this, this book. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'll be back with part three of Philip, my comments on Philip K. Dick's Eye in the Sky in the next episode. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments, you can please leave them below. Or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail. Dot com. And possess my tired thoughts once more. That living dies, that living dies, that living.